Hello and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trapp and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrapp.com. All right, so this is our first episode, and um, what we're trying to do here each week is really get to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community after a conversation to try and uh, get sort of who they are at a little bit deeper level than is typical of this kind of a format. Uh, we're going to drill into a specific area of their expertise uh, for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors who are on the line. As a podcast listener, I'm a huge fan of what Mark Marin does on the WTF podcast, and um, I, I really want to try and do the same thing here in Boston is, is really get to know the people. Uh, in the end, um, I really feel like it's human relationships and it's human beings that drive you know, all of business, but particularly venture capital success. And uh, we'll take you know, 30 minutes each week and just sort of really do a deeper dive to try and get to know someone below their sort of persona, uh, below the Twitter handle a little bit, uh, ask them a little bit about where they come from, what they're about, and, uh, and then drill into a specific topical uh, area of interest. So for our, our inaugural podcast, uh, I'm going to have a chat with uh, Bob Hauer, who is the founding member of G20 Ventures. Bob's a great guy and someone I've known for a long time. Uh, despite that, we had a really interesting conversation, and I learned a bunch of stuff about him and where he came from that uh, I didn't know. So uh, we'll dig a little deep there. Uh, after that, we're going to have a chat about the state of venture capital. Uh, these are times of, of a lot of change in the VC space, a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity out there. Uh, G20 was one of the first with the model that brought uh, together a group of advisors that were essentially people with deep operating experience and supportive entrepreneurs. And I want to hear a little bit about where that came from and what uh, they're about. So um, should be a great conversation first about Bob, and then we'll get into our little blurb, uh, reflection on the state of VC. All right, so how hard can it be a sponsor by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How hard can it be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. All right, so so Bob Howard, so you know I, I met Bob Bob when uh, I was first you know talking to Actifio about maybe coming over to be the CMO here, um, and uh, what struck me about him first meeting first of all he's an incredibly warm and you know kind guy very sort of um, chill um, not not a typical sort of VC in that respect. Among the Boston VCs that I know, he, he has very strong marketing sensibilities. Really understands the function, what it's about, and what it takes. Bob is a 13-year VC vet, twice named to the Forbes Midas list, having led investments in great ideas and great teams, including Acme Packet, which was acquired by Oracle for a couple of billion bucks, uh, App IQ, which was acquired by HP, Channel Advisor, uh, Actifio, uh, X Plus One, which was acquired by Rocket Fuel, Evergage, and Fuse, formerly known as Thinking Phone Networks. Uh, as you'll hear in our conversation before becoming a venture investor, Bob held senior marketing, product management, and sales positions at Lotus Development, Cabot and Forbes, General Mills, and Priority Call Management. Um, Bob has a BA from Harvard College and an MBA from Amos Tuck School at Dartmouth. At Dartmouth. Uh, lives in Cambridge with his beautiful wife and their two lovely children. Um, as I say, I've gotten to know Bob uh, quite a bit over the last few years as an Actifio board member and uh, someone that uh, I've certainly re relied on for advice and counsel. Um, and um, anyway, here's my conversation with Bob Hauer. Hope you like it.
How you doing, Bob? I'm doing well. How you doing, Mike? I'm good. <laughs> this, this reminds me of this, that TV show, Frasier. We got this, Is it? Yeah. This, uh, oh, yeah, Frasier. Giant Mike here. That's good. It's all very smart. It's a psych- psychological deep dive. Um, all right. So, um, you know, what I want to do is just sort of get to know you a little bit. Um, for the benefit of, uh, of our listeners and for folks who will listen to this in posterity. Um, and, and I want to start right at the beginning. So where, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Wyckoff, New Jersey, which is in uh, northern New Jersey, about 20 miles from the George Washington Bridge. And um, you have siblings? I do. I have a very complex sibling uh, Architecture? Architecture, yeah. It's a little Brady Bunches, Bunchish. I... Uh, uh, my my mom had uh, my two sisters and me, and then she remarried when we were uh, when I was eleven, and there were four more boys who uh, moved in, and uh, so then there were seven, and then my dad uh, actually remarried and uh, uh, had a child. So I have a half sister and a stepbrother from that side too. Jeez, so, got a little basketball team there. Yeah. Exactly. So where where do you consider yourself in sort of the birth order sweepstakes? I'm somewhere right in the middle, actually. Right. Uh, yeah. They say that in the middle, you're you're a peacemaker. I uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's I've heard that before. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's kind of true. What was it like growing up in New Jersey? Um, you know, I, I uh, you only have one uh, upbringing, so I I, uh, I don't know that it was much different than anywhere else. I mean, Waco was a great town. Uh, I I just pretty pretty much played sports uh, on the playground and uh, and hung out. Went to public high school, uh, public schools the whole way. And you went to Harvard undergrad, right? And I went to Harvard. Is that a big deal getting in there? Or it was a big expected? deal. That was a big day. No, that was certainly not expected. I don't know anybody that expected <laughs> that, especially my parents. Um, but yeah, that was fun. Uh, and uh, that was a surprise. Did you play Did you play ball at Harvard? I played some soccer at Harvard just two years, uh, but that's about it. Good experience? Great experience. Harvard was great. Uh, growing up was great too, and I think in both cases it's really all about the friends you make. And uh, uh, we have our 35th reunion coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, and most of the guys I played soccer with are coming back for that. I think so. How do you feel like the Harvard experience changed you as a person? That's a good question. I think in some ways it gives you a little bit of confidence, um, frankly, to uh, to be around a lot of smart people, um, but. I don't know that I've changed that much, frankly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, it probably should have changed me a lot more than it did. Uh, I think it probably, it certainly broadened my scope of interests and, and sort of what the possibilities were that are out there. I still have plenty of good friends uh, from there that, uh, uh, that probably had the most influence more than Harvard. And I, I'm not sure that it's the school so much as the experience of being you know, away from home with good friends for four years. Sure. Uh, almost anywhere, but... What did you do when you graduated? Um, so my first job, I wanted to be a real estate developer, and I met with a couple guys that were developers. And the, one of the guys told me I should learn how to uh, do construction. And he said, you should just join a construction company uh, or do a, a renovation. Uh, and I decided to buy a house and renovate it and resell it. So that was my first real job. Um, and I... <laughs> I, I realized a few things, but one of them is that I'm not particularly handy. Uh, <laughs> I did most of the work myself. I hired a couple of contractors to do you know, some of the plumbing and electrical and stuff. But um, the work, let's just say, was not perfect, but uh, the, the end result was, uh, was reasonably successful, although I learned a really good lesson. I finished the job in about, I think it took about six months, and uh, 
I got a great offer right away, um, but it was a little under the asking price. And I thought, oh, you know, this offer came in so fast. <laughs> I should wait. <laughs> and, uh, and then that was it. Uh, you know, they pulled the offer back, and, and I had to wait about, like another six months to go. sell it, and I sold it for less. So that's, a good, that's a good lesson. It's, it's a good lesson. Yeah. So what, what, what drew you to that? I mean, what, was it the hands-on aspect of it? Was it the, you know, that sort of, you know, I guess you know, entrepreneurial in a way, but a lot of people don't graduate from Harvard and go do that. Yeah, it was unusual. Uh, my parents were both in real estate, and uh, I um, I really did think I was going to go into development, and I thought, you know, this is the only time I'm going to probably go learn something about the trades and construction. If I want to if I want to be a decent developer, I should, I should know some of that stuff. And, um, and you know, I, I did that project, and then I... I was able to land a job uh, in Boston at a development company, and so it worked out pretty well. But yeah, it was odd uh, leaving Harvard and not going to you know a bank, an investment banker. Sure. At the time, it was all consulting banking, and um, I don't know. It's interesting. I you know my dad was a sales guy, and and um, that definitely shaped. You know, you absorb that kind of growing up in a household with a with a whatever, whatever your your working parent or parents yeah. does. I guess you kind of pick it up, you know. Yeah. Well, my dad was an entrepreneur too, and he was actually handy, unlike me. But um, he was very direct with me about if you want to go learn something, just go do it. Don't worry about um, you know, don't worry about what people think or whatever. And in fact, I think he would he, he often said, just go try to do the jobs that people don't really want to do. Those are going to be the ones where. You know, you're going to have an interesting experience and be differentiated and whatever. So I think he was encouraging. But it was actually my mother who helped the most with that project. So right. I should uh, So you end up at the firm, and what was that experience like? Um, so I w- went to work for a guy named Cal Fries at uh, Kevin Cabot and Forbes, which at one time in the late 70s, I guess, was the largest developer in the country. And by the time I got there, though, they were kind of in a steady decline. Uh, and I got to work... Uh, in the property management group, um, which uh, meant that uh, as the low guy on the totem pole, I got sort of the worst properties to take care of. And my job was primarily marketing and making sure they were leased up. Um, and what was what was great about that job was, you know, real estate decisions are typically made by the CEO or somebody pretty high up in the organization. So at a relatively young age, I got to meet and work with and negotiate with lots of CEOs and lots of people who own businesses. And I just found that was interesting. So, you know, we had some really uh, crummy projects, but some of them were pretty good. And and it, it uh, some of it was retail, some of it was, you know, office buildings. And so you get to, I got to um, interact with lots of different business leaders uh, and see, um, and, and, you know, you're looking at businesses trying to figure out if they're going to grow and, and how successful they are. So that was a, that was a good education. Although, one of the one of the catches uh, in being in real estate is you start to negotiate like everything, and uh, and I think I, I got a little after three or four years I was you know I thought I could negotiate anything uh, <laughs> in my life and it, it was bad so uh, yeah I had to I had to stop. So how, how long were you there? So I was uh, at CCNF for about four years, and then I went to business school after that. Why'd you go? Why'd you go back to school? Well, I decided I didn't want to be a real estate developer. Um, and one of the things that appealed to me, though, that I, I didn't know something or learned something about was marketing. And I thought business school would be a nice transition for me to try to get 
uh, into marketing at a, in a more traditional firm. And uh, so I had that kind of going in, although, you know, you go to business school, you kind of get a chance to see a lot of things. So I thought it would be a good good opportunity um, to reset. And uh, uh, it was. I um, had a chance to uh, be an intern after my first year out at General Mills in, in uh, Minneapolis. I decided to go there after school. So that was it, w- it worked out to be a good way to to get into the marketing and something you know something about. Sure. <laughs> no, the, the, so in the for those of those of you not in the advertising business or the marketing business, the goal and as a young you know agency admin is you want to be on a packaged goods account because packaged goods is thought to be the you know marketing nirvana that uh, they're they're for the most part with with some exceptions your your you, the marketing really creates the point of distinction and so it's critically important and very sophisticated marketing environments, and particularly General Mills. So that's a kudos to you for, for, for getting out there on the client side. It was a fun, uh, it was a great company uh, to work at. I think it still is, but very flat organization. So you, you got a P&L uh, responsibility right off the bat, and um, you got a brand, and you got to see, you know, um, and some pretty good spend. Uh, there's, they spent a lot of money uh, on their brand. So it was good. It was a really good way to get into marketing. So one of the interesting contrasts there for me is like, you know, in real estate, you're out there, you're you're selling shit, you know, you're trying to get somebody to buy something across the table. It's so different from the way most people think about what's important in marketing. Um, and I, I've always felt that bringing that sales sensibility to a marketing role serves you well. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, in a marketing job at, at General Mills, certainly you're watching, you're watching sales pretty close, you know? Yeah. I think uh, I think marketing really is about empathy. Just trying to understand, you know, what are people going through. Uh, I remember some of the profiles of our consumers, and it was it's really eye opening when you um, look at a a demographic of let's say a hamburger helper buyer. And uh, I grew up eating a lot of hamburger helper, but when I got to know who the consumers were of hamburger helper, you you realize that you know. You got to try to get into their shoes to figure out what marketing is really going to work, and uh, that's not always easy. But um, no, it was a great, great experience, and um, yeah, I had four years there too. Um, at uh, so I'm like a four year, and then I'm I'm done kind of guy, right. I guess. What'd you do after? Um, so I joined a startup. I um, had a connection through Harvard to a guy named Andy Dale, who. Um, had gone to work uh, at a startup called Priority Call Management. And Priority Call Management was um, relatively young when I uh, heard about them and started to talk to Andy. I probably talked to Andy about Priority Call for two years before uh, uh, ultimately joining them. And part of my game plan, actually, for going to General Mills was to learn something about marketing and go back into technology. This one of the jobs I didn't mention was I... I worked uh, during college at Lotus Development and uh, kind of knew I wanted to go back to, to the tech world at some point. Um, so I thought I'll just learn this classical marketing stuff and go in, back into the tech world. And, and so where, where, when was that? That's Manzi pre pre Yeah, IBM. so Manzi was the CEO. Yeah, yeah. When I was there, those are those are sort of heady days. They were great days. We were they were minting money then. Uh, yeah, uh, just ahead of when um, uh, when Microsoft caught on to the spreadsheet market, but. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. I worked there for summer, uh, and then I worked a day to two days a week my senior year there and uh, and, and enjoyed it. Yeah, so I, I learned about Priority Call, and at the time, the founder and CEO was a guy named Andy Ori, uh, who uh, I met with, and, you know, sort of not your 
typical General Mills executive. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I should mention one of the reasons I left General Mills is they wouldn't let me have an internet connection because they were worried about too worried about security. And uh, uh, now this was back in ninety. Four ninety-five, just when the internet was opening up, so you know, it's a little bit understandable. But th- that's kind of when I realized this isn't going to be a great long-term thing. Um, but Andy is a, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people know him. Um, I think now uh, he hasn't changed much. He's is a really a brilliant guy who is very personable and can be infectious about his passion for whatever you know, project he's working on. So, so what, what was the bet in that business priority call? What, what, what was it about? So the, the idea back then was there was a, there was a standard um, or a, a switching platform called Excel, uh, and this is in the t- telecom space, that allowed for programmability to happen. So up until then, phone systems were pretty much set in stone. If you bought something from right down to the automated attendant menu, I mean, if you bought... I think most people, well, it might be hard to remember now, but if you bought a Lucent or if you, you know, if you bought an AT&T or, or a Via system or whatever, you got their, you know, you got their call flow, you got their automated attendant. Uh, what Excel allowed for is for a software vendor like Priority Call to come in and write whatever call flow, whatever interface you want. So... There was a lot of functionality besides just voicemail that we did. In fact, uh, initially the company really made a market in international callback and other things. This is when fo- phone calls cost something, and uh, there was a lot of arbitrage available and so on. So they were the software that rode on top of these, this, this new programmable switch. Uh, it was a new, a new category. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, I, I, having heard from Andy and, and uh, Andy Dale for a year or two about the company, I thought, oh, this will be easy. I'll just come in and you know, whip up a few slick brochures and, and we'll be off to the races. <laughs> but uh, consumer marketing and uh, tech marketing are quite different, uh, particularly in an early stage startup. All right. uh, was it a hard lesson? Yeah, it was. I spent the first couple of months kind of standing between engineering and sales and just watching these guys talk to each other and neither side listening to me. So right, right. it took Welcome me Welcome to marketing. It was <laughs> Welcome yeah, to marketing. Yeah. Well, it took me a while to realize that like you know, the job of marketing is not to go tell engineering uh, you know, what the consumer wants and and have them believe you. Uh, it's really to get out there and 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 get engineering together with sales somehow in a productive way so that right. they really do um, believe the the roadmap that you that you articulate and uh, anyway you know the, 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 I was not a very effective marketer at Priority Call and uh, after a while you know Andy Andy's quite good at figuring out I think where people can be used most effectively and where they can grow and so forth and at one point he came to me I think he could tell I was frustrated and said well maybe you want to uh, run a, a, a a group, um, you know, have a P and L and 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 really run, um, you know, sales and and um, and I thought, yeah, I should try that. <laughs> I wasn't getting anywhere really with the marketing, and then eventually I went over to Europe and started up our operation over there. So that was uh, that was a great experience too. What was the outcome for that business? So we sold uh, the business uh, in the middle of '99, which was a uh, good time but we probably sold a little early but um and the 
the company sold for about 160 million um, to a company, uh, really a European company called LHS Group, which was based in Germany in Frankfurt. And I was living over in London at the time, so it was it was um, it was interesting because we we actually uh, were doing well in Europe, and but once we had a chance to to sell with the LHS Group, it just was great. <laughs> it just changed everything. Right. So you look back on that, and then you, at the end of one of those experiences, you're like, well, that wasn't that hard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was really, you know, I I have this view of startups that I, I, I'm sure is shared by most people that have, have been in and around them, and that is that it is very hard. I mean, it's it's incredibly hard. You need a little bit of luck, and but you need a tremendous amount of commitment and and employee loyalty and and you know alignment and it's just hard you know we probably didn't have the sort of easiest or friendliest market to to go attack but it wasn't bad this was when the selex there was a lot of things up for grabs so i think that you know the environment was probably a pretty favorable but it was very hard every sale was hard right <laughs> as i remember so what did you do after that um so i went uh i was going to take a job you know in the optical networking business next and that was the hot hot thing to try to do but I got a call from a friend um, of mine who was at Bank Boston Ventures at the time and asked if I wanted to come in and talk about this venture capital thing and uh, I sort of remember thinking I was too young to be able to do that like I thought of older, How old were you? older guys you know with gray hair uh, <laughs> That was in 99, so I was about uh, 34, 35. I don't know. You know, as it turns out, it's really not, and today it's not. But uh, I, it was not a job I was thinking about, sure. really, uh, at the time. So you go, and what, what, what did you find compelling about it on closer inspection? You know, I, um, I think there's a lot of great things about venture, but one is that you really have the ability to learn and be multi-threaded all the time. So, you, you know, if you... Your job does change week to week. Um, you're you're really forced to to go learn about things, and and you really are tested about uh, areas that you know you have some knowledge in, but not complete knowledge, um, including you know evaluating people and trying to figure out how to get to know what they're good at and what you know whether they have the right abilities for you know for building a enterprise. But I didn't really know what I was doing. I was lucky there because I, I actually had an office next to uh, their general counsel. I had a chance to like learn the legal side of the business really quickly. And then this was kind of the go-go days before it was, it was uh, early 2000. I guess the, cra- the crash started around April. But I'd been there for about six or eight months. And and at first, it was just kind of crazy, the valuations that I was looking at. And I, I didn't – I mean, I wrote one term sheet for a – uh, an optical company uh, for a thirty million dollar pre, and they they ended up getting an offer for I think it was three hundred million dollar pre. So those, it was just a really that was the weirdest time. Right, uh, long for those days. Did you miss out? In, uh, <laughs> did you miss out on anything great in retrospect? No, no. I actually was very lucky. Uh, I think because I was slow to the uh, you know slow to the trigger, and then things started to fall apart. And uh, it just turns out that. Venture capital groups as part of large banks is not a particularly great idea. Having a single LP is not a great idea. So I wasn't really there that long, and uh, Fleet decided they were going to get out of the business. They had a $3 billion portfolio, and they wanted to move it to $1 billion. So even I could figure that out that's not going to be a good formula uh, right. for, for a lot of investing. Uh, Got it. 
And uh, how did Advanced Technology Ventures come about? So I had been um, at business school with one of the partners at ATV, Mike Carusi, and uh, I uh, ended up connecting with them. At the time, they were expanding, and they were looking for somebody um, with my background. So it actually worked out great. I just uh, joined and uh, and had a great run. Still, I'm at ATV, but I had a great run investing there for about 14 years. Got it. What do you think made ATV, you know, special? What, what was your guys' sort of calling card? Well, a uh, couple of things. I, you know, it's a bi-coastal firm uh, and 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 also diversified. So we invested in healthcare, um, clean tech, and um, and software and IT. And I think for in some ways it worked well because you could rotate around. Um, across sectors, depending on you know the climate of the environment. So, you know there are there are years where medical device opportunities are great and you want to jump in, and there are years where they're not. Um, and same thing with software. So I think as a you know as a fund, we didn't feel severe pressure to have to invest into any one sector at any one time. Um, so that's the that's the good. Uh, and I think the challenging part is there aren't as many synergies to investing across those sectors, as you might hope. Uh, you spend a fair amount of time explaining what you're doing, your investments and your companies to each other, and that's that's really not particularly helpful to your portfolio companies, and sometimes they even face these firing squads of good questions but not particularly relevant to where sure. the business is and so on. So I think that's kind of what led me to think hard about what would a more focused, you know, responsive firm look like. I want to I want to finish up with a conversation about about that. Before we get there, um, you know, what do you like to do outside of this place? Um, so I'm pretty much a full-time dad, uh, first of all. I, I, I hope uh, among the dozen or so people that listen to this, my kids get this part, get to this part. <laughs> so mark this. Um, uh, no, I, I uh, you know, I got a a few things, uh, but I would say that the kids and uh, and my wife take most of the time. I, I live in Cambridge. Um, I'm involved in a couple of nonprofit things, which I enjoy. But I, I think the most fun. Uh, I play hockey a couple times a week, um, which which is um, which is great fun. And uh, I am actually coaching my daughter's soccer team right now too. So that's. Uh, Although I can't make the first practice or the first game, so nice. it's not good. Yeah. Guilt bump. <laughs> so uh, why the obsession with the Red Sox, Bob? Where, what's that about? Oh, uh, you know, my grandparents started taking me to Sox games from the time I was four, so that's where it started. Um, but I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little impatient with the length of the games, <laughs> even even me. Uh, and the Sox are having a... Uh, a great season, but um, these games they gotta they gotta shorten them. For the second part of our podcast each week, I'd like to take some time with our guests to talk about a specific area of interest or expertise for the benefit of our listeners in the startup community. Bob and I decided to talk about the state of innovation in VC as a whole, starting with some observations about what's really important in venture these days, and the specific reasons he and partner Bill Weiberg decided to split off from ATV and create G20 Ventures. Here again, Bob Hauer. 
it's it's a cliche, but you really do need to appeal to the best entrepreneurs, and you need to compete and win. And and those are the folks that are, they're the customers. And so we started thinking, what you know, how how can we make Vetra better for for them? Um, and I think it starts in some ways with having a fairly deep respect and and sort of admiration for entrepreneurs for what they do, what they sacrifice. Um, for uh, their talents and, and, you know, for some of the heartache they have to go through. And um, so the question we started with was, um, you know, what do they want? And the answer we came up with really was they, they just want trusted advice um, uh, from people who have been in their shoes, you know, fairly recently. So not necessarily from a VC who's been out of the market for 10 or 15 years, but people who can give them sort of a, a jolt, a shot of, of support, of, of information, of, um, you know, encouragement to get them through some of the challenges uh, that they, they face every day. And so, you know, we, we have been really um, fortunate enough to have worked with a bunch of great entrepreneurs over, over the last 15 years. And we started by going out to, to a few of them. And I think the first I reached out to was Andy Ori. And, um, and I said, Andy, you know, we're trying to build a community. Of- Andy, just just a quick quick intersection. So, Andy, after the triumph that was uh, uh, <laughs> priority call, priority call yeah. I went on to found a small company called Acme Packet, which was sold to you know Oracle for and probably the biggest exit of that billion something, right? It wasn't was after after a the IPO. Over two, yeah. Okay, so so huge. Outsized success, and Andy Ori, in addition to being, you know, being a great guy and someone who is, I think, one of the more beloved souls in the in the venture space, uh, is really an you know, outsized success. And 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 uh, so he's the first call you make. So he's the first call, and he's sort of, and he's always good at testing ideas and uh, pushing back and trying to figure out what's really different. Um, how are you going to do this? And um, we had thought through how we wanted to structure the fund, so. I think, you know, to be clear, one of the differences is to try to share some of the carry with this community, with this group of folks, um, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a way of saying, you know, we're not, we're not just going to call you and look for advice. Um, uh, we want you to feel like you're a part of this thing. And so we shared the details of the fund. Other, other important things to Andy, were, frankly, was, you know, what's the expense base? I think Andy... And many entrepreneurs are kind of tired of, of VCs who seem to make a lot of money off their fund but are not exactly aligned on the economics of making some of these deals work. Um, well, for you know, for, for the benefit of folks who maybe aren't familiar, like, what is carry? You know, how do, how do VCs make money between, you know, is it all the returns on their fund or? or? Yeah, so it's the basic, I mean, the basic math or the basic mechanic uh, mechanics are that <clears throat> you, you take money f- from your investors, and they expect that money to be returned before you share in any of the profits. But the typical fund structure is that you, the, the general partners of the venture fund, the investors, would take 20% of the profits after capital is returned. And so, um, you know, that's pretty good basic alignment uh, for um, uh, sharing value. I think one of the challenges, though, is many funds have a percentage of funds under management as a fee structure, and so that creates an incentive to raise as much money as you possibly can, because almost by definition your salary goes up, and then you therefore are, you know, in a position to have to invest all the money that you've raised. So I think there are a lot of people in the industry who are quite good at raising money, and um, they're and they're good at investing it too. 
But I think uh, in the middle, uh, sometimes you have environments where there's a lot of money being raised, funds get maybe oversized, and you end up doing you end up seeing some unnatural acts where either money gets pushed out um, uh, too quickly, uh, too much money goes into deals, the expectations for the company are not realistic, um, and so forth. Um, so our our view was: look, let's take fixed salaries. Um, for starters, and let's keep our expenses um, under control, so that our we really only win if our our um, companies win and if our entrepreneurs win. Uh, and that's that was the uh, you know that was that was the strategy for uh, our first fund. It'll be our strategy for fund two. And our investors really responded to that. But the other thing I should mention is a little bit of a difference is our G20 group that we went out and recruited represent about a third of the. In, invested capital in the fund. So that's, um, and it's a significant, I think a significant amount of money to each of them. Um, and, and that was the other thing that we were looking for. Um, and so what does that mean when you have, uh, you know, people who are invested both, um, you know, both financially and with Mindshare, uh, it means you can get, um, you can really get their help and their support when you need it and that they're going to be thinking about you when, uh, even when you're not uh, necessarily right, you know, in contact with them. And that's really proven to be the case. We've, I would say we've used all of our G20 members. Um, and of course, we've used you, as you well know, uh, quite a bit. Uh, and and it's been, you know, it's worked really well. Uh, and so like 12 or 13 of, a, of our G20 are, are traditional CEOs. Um, there's uh, five or six uh, guys uh, and gals that are just terrific position players. And I think they each get used for various situations. Uh-huh. It's it's interesting to me, um, you know, that model. What's what's right for entrepreneurs and trying to bring resources to the table. Uh, you know, it's it's very similar to another Actifio investor, Andreessen Horowitz, right? Yeah. Um, they've sort of taken the opposite approach in terms of the scale. Right now, they're six and a half billion under management, and I think they have one hundred and twenty. Uh, full-time employees now in the fund, but but so similar in every respect except for the scale question. Yeah, know. and I think you can do some things at scale probably better than others. Uh, I think we've talked about their briefing program. I think that's a pretty good um, program that they have. Um, I think at the end of the day, though, if your investor, if the board member has 12 or 15 companies uh, and you go in to present um, to a, a you know a panel of folks who ha- may may have a, a couple hundred companies. Um, you're not going to get exactly the same treatment from those those um, partners. Uh, now, if you know the services, I, I think Andreessen Horowitz does a good job actually of investing in these services and so on. A lot of firms don't. Um, they they have scale, but they don't necessarily sure. provide and and have thought through those services because they're. You know, they're relatively new on the scene, I would say. Absolutely. They'd, they'd be the first to admit, you know, Ben and Mark would say this is a, still a big experiment and things look good preliminarily. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, there was just a recent, you know, thing about their returns. I, their returns looked pretty good. Uh, not, not you know, over the top great, but pretty good. It's, it's just not easy, I think, to be in the top 1%. If you're investing billions of dollars sure. in venture capital, just I think it's pretty hard. Sure, and it's still early days. This is a yeah. someone once described venture to me as a, a big get rich slow scheme. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> you hope. Yeah, <laughs> things work out. So, um, so it, it's it seems to me like this is a time of, of a lot of innovation. You know, G20. Um, 
you know, was sort of the first with this model. Other people have followed suit. There's, it just seems like there's a lot of people trying interesting things. Andreessen is another experiment in that respect. You know, what do you see as, as you know, where do we go next? Um, you know, particularly thoughts on, 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 you know, crowdfunding and some of these other more innovative models. Yeah, I mean, I, there is a lot of innovation. Well, I say a lot, you know, compared to past uh, decades in venture where there's been almost none. Sure. Um, I think people are trying to do um, kind of the same thing, but in different ways. I think at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is pull together the resources you need to help companies. And... There, there are various ways to do it. I mean, one of the resources is money. I, I think the um, some of the crowdsourcing techniques are really effective, particularly for consumer companies, where getting uh, some uh, PR and, and name recognition helps right off the bat. Uh, and so I think that's brilliant. Um, I think in the enterprise space, it's probably less um, effective um, to be able to do do crowdfunding. I think on the enterprise side, though, um, you know, it's a little bit more organic the way investors and entrepreneurs get connected and folks are trying to uh, present themselves to the entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem in a way that allows them to connect to the best entrepreneurs in, you know, and playing to their strengths. So, you know, our, we think our G20 community is a great it's a great resource for entrepreneurs, and we often do meet um, the entrepreneurs that we invest in through them. But I think more importantly, once we uh, meet with entrepreneurs and we uh, can con- connect them with some of our G20 folks, uh, they really do get uh, the feeling of what we can provide. Um, and you know, there's there's lots of different ways to bring value. So I don't think, you know, I don't think we have a unique ability to do that. But I do think at the end of the day, it's very hard to scale certain aspects of venture because you, you need to know how much you can, how much you can trust people, how much you can lean on them, how much time they have, you know, all kinds of things. If you're asking for them to act as a resource, oftentimes for free. And we just, you know, we feel like we're at a scale that, that makes a lot of sense um, uh, where we are. The more people you have involved, the sort of I think less connected and, and trusted you can you can be in those relationships, um, but you want to have a certain scale uh, that that gives you you know the ability to to provide value in most situations. I guess the way I look at it. So we have people who can do later stage things like Perry Traquina, who was the CEO um, of a you know a, a large investment house and. We have guys that have just done really early stage stuff and everything in between. This is too strong a word, but your natural aversion to scale, or at least your acknowledgement of its limitations, was uh, was a very interesting idea as we as we talked about finding new ways to tell the G20 story and identify what made it special. And out of that came this idea of of people first. Talk a little bit about what that means to you, and you know what's unique about about the way it's it's realized here. Yeah, I I, I think the you know the, the term people first. Um, I think it reflects the idea that you really you really have to consider what the team and the company need ahead of everything else, and really put yourself into their shoes as much as you can. Um, and I think people say that, but. I guess I've been involved in enough situations where you can tell which people are really trying to do that and really think about how they can help in the moment or, you know, that week, uh, that month, help the entrepreneurs work through what they need to get done or people who are thinking about their investment as their primary concern and how they're going to protect their investment or how they might, um, uh, you know, minimize risk to their investment and so on. And, um, 
you know, they're just, uh, they're just different mindsets. Uh, and not to generalize too much, but I think the private equity guys, and the, the later stage you go, uh, the, the more you, you feel um, people just looking at numbers and trying to make sure that, you know, the company's either delivering or isn't delivering. And if it's not delivering, then, you know, somebody's, something's got to change uh, right away. <laughs> and uh, I think early stage investors tend to want to really, they're a little more curious. They want to really understand what is happening and see if a change can happen, uh, whether that's, you know, a strategy or a business model or moving people around into different jobs, you know, whatever that is, but really understanding. And so it involves getting to know people before you get to know the business, um, if, if that makes sense. It does. All right, should we go to Red Sox game? Sure. Okay. <laughs> So there you go, my uh, inaugural episode of How Hard Can It Be? Really great conversation with Bob Hauer. Uh, not your typical VC, and uh, interesting that um, part of that is just he hasn't had the typical story arc in coming to the business. Uh, we really enjoyed that Red Sox game, by the way. Uh, met with Dino De Palma, another of the G20 um, members and a likely candidate for one of these in the future. Um, so, you know, love to get your feedback on this, uh, on this whole approach. Best way to reach me is through Twitter. It's again, Mike Trap. Uh, you can visit my blog at MikeTrap.com. Uh, want to mention at the end here that How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business results resiliency, and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Uh, Thanks for hanging out with me for a while here. Uh, Shoot me your feedback on Twitter, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye.